0: Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, domestic violence, drug abuse, and suicidal ideation that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. In July 1973, 34-year-old Marvin Gaye sped down the highway. Cocaine-induced warmth flooded his arms and legs, He couldn't stop smiling, but not because of the drugs. Weaving in and out of traffic, all Marvin thought of was how proud his father would be when he heard the news. But as he pulled into his parents' driveway, Marvin's excitement gave way to nerves. He thought about doing another line before he went inside, but the drugs had already dilated his pupils and he didn't want to look too suspicious. Besides, there was nothing to be worried about. His mother was always elated to see him. And his father, well, his father was his father. And today, Marvin would finally make him proud. Marvin knocked on the front door. When it swung open, he was greeted by his mother's warm smile and his father's curt nod. He came inside carrying an attache case and threw it open on the bed, It was a million dollars in cash from Motown Records. His mother's mouth fell open. She threw her arms around Marvin and cried, but his father didn't even look at him. Instead, he wrinkled his nose in disgust and asked his son, I still say, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Marvin flushed. Ashamed and suddenly crashing from the high he'd enjoyed on the drive over, he shoved the check in his pocket and ran out of the house. He sped back home with tears blurring his vision. Nothing he did was ever good enough for his father. No amount of money or fame could make him proud. Marvin tried to dry his cheeks, but the tears kept coming. He glanced at his reflection in the rearview mirror and felt repulsed. Maybe... He had lost his soul, after all. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream crimes of passion for free on spotify just open the app and type crimes of passion in the search bar this is our first episode on soul singer marvin gay this week we'll explore his complicated relationship with his father a strict pentecostal preacher who disapproved of his son's sexually charged music we'll see how the physical abuse marvin's father inflicted on him as a child led to a lifetime of insecurity and ultimately resulted in an altercation that left one man dead. Next week, we'll cover the fallout of the crime and the way it changed Marvin Gaye's family legacy forever.
1: Now on Netflix. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance
0: plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Marvin Pence Gay, Jr. was born on April 2nd, 1939, the second child to Marvin Sr. and Alberta Gay. The family lived in Washington DC's public housing developments. They weren't financially well off, but Marvin Sr. made sure the family was spiritually rich through his work as the preacher of their small Pentecostal church. From the beginning, Marvin Jr. faced heavy expectations as his father's namesake. Marvin Sr. awaited the day his son followed in his footsteps and became the new leader of their congregation, Beginning when Marvin Jr. was six years old, he accompanied his father to Pentecostal conventions. Marvin Sr. preached sermons and Marvin Jr. sang hymns. It seemed like the two made the perfect pair. But things were not so harmonious behind closed doors. Marvin Sr. was a strict disciplinarian. He kept his four children isolated. They were seldom, if ever, allowed to visit friends' houses, watch television, or consume any kind of popular media. When any of his kids misbehaved, he beat them with belts, switches, or if nothing else was handy, his fists. They were forced to be naked during these beatings, presumably so Marvin Sr. could inflict more pain. Marvin Sr.'s wife, Alberta, never laid hands on her children, but she was a quiet, old-fashioned woman who wouldn't speak out against her husband. Even with all four of her children exhibiting problems with bedwetting, a symptom of the nervousness and fear that pervaded their home, Alberta stayed quiet and only comforted the kids when he was away. Marvin Jr.'s siblings all agreed that he received the worst and most frequent beatings. In a later interview, Alberta said, My husband never liked Marvin. The son that Marvin Sr. prayed for didn't turn out to be the well-behaved meek child he desired. Marvin Jr. made trouble and wanted to hang out with friends instead of going to church. But that wasn't what really bothered his father. More than anything, Marvin Sr. resented the attention his son garnered. Every sermon he preached was overshadowed by Marvin Jr. singing. People came to services to watch the boy perform gospel music, not to learn the lessons their preacher had prepared. Marvin Sr. grew to view his namesake as someone he had to compete against at church and at home. According to Alberta's cousin, it seemed like Mr. Gay had a grudge against his son. In later interviews, Marvin said that throughout his adolescence, winning his father's love was his ultimate goal. Before I continue with Marvin's psychology, please note I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. We can look at Marvin's desire for his father's affection through the lens of attachment theory. First coined by psychologist John Bowlby in 1980, this theory hypothesizes that people form various attachment styles that become crucial to how their personalities develop. These attachments can be healthy and secure or unhealthy and insecure. In his paper on childhood abuse and attachment theory, psychologist Thomas H. Styron writes that victims of childhood abuse are twice as likely to develop insecure attachment styles than children who were not maltreated. Insecure attachments are characterized most basically by children feeling that their caregivers will not be responsive in a time of distress. Enduring repeated episodes of physical abuse likely led Marvin Jr. to develop an insecure attachment style because he couldn't count on his father to be a source of safety or care. Indeed, between the ages of 7 and 13, Marvin Jr.'s life at home was defined by violence. His father beat him for even the smallest infractions, such as not putting his hairbrush away when he was done using it. This prolonged maltreatment and Marvin Jr.'s resulting insecure attachment made it difficult for him to develop close trusting relationships as an adult. He suffered from a pervasive sense of insecurity that made even his greatest successes feel undeserved. Before the musical success of his later life, Marvin Jr. was a very confused preteen. The evangelical church in which he was raised taught him to view the world as a series of binaries—heaven and hell, good and evil, the holy and the horrible. As he grew older, the nuance of the real world frightened and intrigued him. Perhaps most problematic for Marvin was the supposed divide between the masculine and the feminine. His father's sermons taught him that men and women should serve distinct roles in society— with men being dominant and women subservient. However, Marvin Sr. lived a double life outside the church. At home, it wasn't uncommon for him to curl his hair and wear his wife's clothing. According to Alberta, Marvin Sr. liked to wear her panties and nylon hose. Although she was never sure if her husband was gay, 5 of his 12 siblings were openly homosexual. These overt displays of femininity confused Marvin Jr. because they were inconsistent with the image of manhood outlined in the Bible and in his father's sermons. Somehow, everyone in the community knew about Marvin Sr.'s behavior. Perhaps some neighbors caught glimpses of him in his wife's clothing. When 12-year-old Marvin Jr. started middle school in 1951, Rumors of his father's effeminacy ran rampant through the hallways. Marvin Jr.'s confusion about manhood turned into embarrassment and shame. He hated what he viewed as his father's fractured masculinity and found himself searching for an uncomplicated example of manhood. Feeling unsure about his own identity made it difficult for Marvin to relate to other kids his age. At a time when crushes and first kisses were on everyone's mind— He worried that his budding interest in girls was a sign of the devil's influence on his mind. The only examples of womanhood available to Marvin Jr. were those he found at home and in the Bible. In his church, women were divided into two categories, temptresses and madonnas. In his mother, Marvin Jr. saw a Madonna. Even if Alberta couldn't stop his father from beating him, she was always there to comfort him after a whipping. To everyone who knew her, she was loyal, patient, and hardworking. To Marvin, she was faultless, and he spent his adult life searching for a woman who lived up to the standard she had set. As a teenager though, Marvin Jr. saw a world overwhelmed by temptresses. He was suspicious of girls, but also feared that not dating made others see him as less masculine. In his mind, He needed to reject anything potentially feminine. Otherwise, people might think he was like his father. Marvin was drawn to the image of masculinity portrayed by popular jazz singers like Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, and his favorite singer of all, Nat King Cole. Marvin Jr. frequently saw Cole perform at DC's Howard Theater. Marvin Jr. sprinted toward the theater's double doors, hoping not to miss the beginning of the show. The lights were already dim by the time he reached his seat. When Nat Cole walked on stage, Marvin's excitement was muted by a strange and unexpected jealousy. Nat looked sharp, sharper than Marvin ever had, in a well-fitted suit and a pair of sunglasses. He sat before his piano, fingers dancing effortlessly over the keys. His voice was a smooth baritone that, every so often, reached down to a powerful bass. Marvin's throat tightened as he watched Nat perform. His own voice was a pitch he found girlish, emasculating. He would have given anything to trade places with the man on stage. He yearned to somehow absorb Nat's dignity, his manliness, tears filled Marvin's eyes. He'd never be able to afford a suit like Nat's. He'd never be able to hit those notes. He'd never be able to be the kind of man he wanted to be. The fear of not living up to his own expectations became even more pronounced when Marvin saw his father fall from grace. Nothing mattered more to Marvin Sr. than the church, Yet in 1954, when Marvin Jr. was 15 years old, his father left the congregation. Since the early 1950s, Marvin Sr. had argued with his fellow church leaders about the future of their group. He was deeply conservative, but some wanted the church to move in a more progressive direction. Instead of agreeing to a split, Marvin Sr. left the church altogether. He fell into a depression, Drink heavily, and refused to work. Because 40-year-old Marvin Sr. was no longer supporting the family, 41-year-old Alberta was forced to get a job as a housekeeper. It disgusted Marvin Jr. to see his mother working long hours while his father stayed at home drinking. When drunk, Marvin Sr. only became more cruel. He beat his son mercilessly, And even though Marvin Jr. was taller and stronger than his father, he refused to hit back. According to Marvin Jr., where I come from, even raising a hand to your father is an invitation for him to kill you. Since he couldn't fight back, Marvin Jr. swallowed his feelings. Although he didn't say it out loud, he knew in his heart that he would never forgive his father for what he'd done. Up next, Marvin looks for ways to escape his father's abuse.
1: Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery.
0: Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio
1: laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly.
0: Now, back to the story. In 1954, 15-year-old Marvin Gaye Jr watched his father fall from grace when he left his position as a preacher of their Pentecostal church. Marvin Sr. refused to get another job, fell into a depression, and spent his days drinking heavily. He was consumed by bitterness and anger, which he took out on his son by frequently beating him. Sometimes Marvin Sr. grew so enraged, he kicked his son out of the house. Marvin Jr. was forced to sleep on friends' couches and sneak back home to get money from his mother. With everything going on at home, school was the last thing on Marvin's mind. His suffering grades only exacerbated his feelings of inadequacy. The only thing that made him feel good was music. Even though his father no longer attended services, Marvin Jr. still sang with the Pentecostal church choir. His interest in music, however, went beyond gospel. In 1955, when he was 16 years old, Marvin and his friend Reese Palmer started a jazz group called the DC Tones. Alberta supported her son's musical endeavors wholeheartedly, but Marvin Sr. didn't like jazz. If it wasn't gospel, he didn't want to hear it. The DC Tones never took off for a variety of reasons. Even though Marvin Jr.'s tenor was impeccable, he was still very insecure about his voice. The failure of his first band felt, at the time, like a failure of his entire musical career. Singing was the only thing Marvin had ever really been good at. He had no other plans or passions. He certainly didn't care for school. His father gave him an ultimatum, either apply for college or join the military. Marvin Jr. finished his junior year in 1956, then dropped out of school to join the Air Force. Marvin hated the military. Instead of learning to fly planes, his officers never let him do anything more than peel potatoes in the kitchen. At first, Marvin thought he was given menial duties because he was bad at following orders. While this was certainly a factor, something else became clear as well. The only men learning to fly were white. Marvin was bored with his duties and well aware that he wouldn't be given any better opportunities on the base. He tried to make friends, but each conversation left him feeling lonelier than before. It seemed everyone else had proud fathers or beautiful girlfriends waiting for them at home. Marvin started sneaking off the base to look for fun. One evening, after weeks of arguing with himself over the decision, He hired a sex worker. Marvin approached the small wooden building under the cover of darkness. His hands shook as he twisted the doorknob. A woman showed him to a private room and quickly pulled off his shirt. He tried to tell her it was his first time being with a woman, but before he could speak, her mouth was trailing its way down his neck. Marvin's body was on fire, both anxious and aroused. He moved through the motions of the act that had so long dominated his thoughts, but he felt detached like he was watching himself from somewhere far away. Every time he'd imagine losing his virginity, the scene was soft and dreamlit, nothing like this mindless crashing of bodies. This was everything he'd learned sex shouldn't be. It was lust divorced from love It scared him how much he liked it. Marvin's experience with the sex worker ignited an obsession with what he called love for sale. Women who sold sex were, in his opinion, textbook temptresses. Yet, paying for sex also helped Marvin feel free of expectations. If the women he slept with were simply performing a service for him, there was no pressure to please them no way he could be inadequate losing his virginity was in marvin's own words the one good thing that happened to him in the air force he knew he needed out he recalled to david ritz his biographer i had to prove i was crazy i began faking a crazy attitude but in the end believe me it was no act he received an honorable discharge nine months after he enlisted Marvin and his officers both agreed the Air Force wasn't the place for him. When 18-year-old Marvin Jr. returned home in 1957, he wasn't welcome in his father's house unless he agreed to go to college. But school sounded just as bad as the military. Instead of returning to his studies, he formed a new musical group called The Marquis, alongside his former bandmate Reese Palmer and another friend James Nolan. Unlike the DC Tones, the Marquise booked a considerable number of gigs around Washington, DC. At one of these shows, Marvin met music producer Bo Diddley, who helped the Marquise put together their first album. The record was, unfortunately, a commercial failure. To keep his musical dream alive, Marvin Jr. washed dishes at a local white-only restaurant. When he wasn't at work, he kept making music and was soon put in contact with songwriter and producer Harvey Fuqua. Harvey saw not only Marvin's obvious talent, but also the soul and vulnerability the young singer put into his music. Harvey was entranced. He invited Marvin to join his R&B group, Harvey and the New Moon Glows, and two years later, the whole band moved to Chicago, Illinois. 20-year-old Marvin was torn over his move away from home. He was glad to get further from his father, but he missed his mother terribly. He wrote to her every two weeks and sent money every month. It wasn't enough cash for her to quit her housekeeping job, but it was something. By 1961, 22-year-old Marvin had relocated to Detroit to work with Motown Studios. He'd featured on numerous singles and put out a solo album called The Soulful Moods of Marvin Gaye, but he had little money to show for it. Barry Gordy, Motown's founder, had the studio's musicians signed contracts giving him all rights to music recorded under the label. Royalty payments were so small they were practically negligible. Still, Marvin finally felt like he'd found his place in the world at Motown, It was a Black-owned business, creating music overwhelmingly marketed towards Black Americans. Back in DC, Marvin attended segregated schools and got kicked out of white-only parks. Motown was a place for Black excellence and dignity, and he wasn't going to give that up. Barry Gordy also became something of a father figure to Marvin. He was strict, but unlike Marvin Sr., Barry praised and validated him. Marvin craved this attention, but his need for affirmation made him vulnerable and allowed Barry to take advantage of him economically. Barry found a singer who brought in huge profits. Marvin found what felt like a new family. Because he felt so comfortable at Motown, other people who worked there rarely saw his insecurity. Instead, they saw an attractive, talented, single young man According to one woman who worked at Motown in the early 1960s, everybody had a crush on Marvin Gaye. But Marvin was hesitant to get involved with anyone. He distrusted women who made passes at him, casting them as temptresses, but also worrying that if they did get in bed together, he'd perform poorly. There was only one woman at Motown who Marvin had eyes for, 39-year-old Anna Gordy, Because she was 17 years his senior, it would be difficult to argue that Marvin's attraction to Anna wasn't at least somewhat based on her similarity to his mother. It didn't hurt that she also happened to be Barry Gordy's sister. In June 1963, Marvin and Anna got married. With a seat at the Gordy family table, Marvin had more influence over his music than ever before. His song Pride and Prejudice made the top 10 on the pop chart, allowing him to cross over from R&B into the popular sphere. Black and white Americans alike were listening to his music. With best-selling songs, A Well-Connected Wife, and Freedom in the Studio, Marvin Gaye built his reputation as the Prince of Motown. Barry started treating him as a brother-in-law instead of just an employee which meant more money for Marvin. The first thing he did with his newfound wealth was buy his mother and father a house in a middle-class neighborhood in Washington, DC. Marvin could sleep soundly knowing his mother no longer had to work. Even though he could afford plane tickets, Marvin didn't visit home often. He hated seeing his father. It brought up too many old memories, too much shame. When interviewers asked where he was from, Marvin answered Detroit, not Washington. Marvin's tendency to reject his past is a sign of what psychologists have termed avoidance coping. According to a 10-year study by the American Psychological Association, this coping strategy involves cognitive and behavioral efforts organized toward denying, minimizing or otherwise avoiding dealing directly with stressful demands. For Marvin, pretending his life in Washington, D.C. never existed was preferable to going through the process of healing his trauma. Although it made him feel better in the short term, avoidance coping actually made Marvin's psychological health worse. In the study by the APA on stress, coping strategies, and depression, a group of five psychologists found that avoidance coping has been linked to increased depressive symptoms and may actively promote new stressors. In other words, avoiding dealing with trauma can be a vicious cycle. The more one denies their distress, the more problems it causes. But Marvin refused to acknowledge the extent of his internal strife, opting instead to embrace his identity as Anna's husband. After about a year of marriage, Marvin was ready to start a family of his own, He wanted to prove he could be a better dad than his own father ever was. But Anna, now 43 years old, couldn't conceive. So in 1965, she and 26-year-old Marvin adopted a baby boy, who they named Marvin Pence Gay III. The domestic bliss Marvin hoped for didn't last long. By the second half of the 1960s, Marvin Gaye was a sex symbol, regardless of his private anxieties. Motown wanted to exploit his public image by having him record a series of romantic duets. So he sang Ain't No Mountain High Enough alongside Tammy Terrell. According to Marvin, he and Tammy's relationship was strictly platonic, but their chemistry was palpable and Anna didn't like how sultry their onstage performances became. Marvin was admittedly very fond of Tammy. After about a year of recording and performing together, he grew to love her like a sister. Then in October 1967, he was blindsided when she collapsed into his arms on stage. He rushed her to the hospital or scans confirmed the presence of a malignant tumor in her brain. After a series of surgeries, 24-year-old Tammy died in March, 1970. According to many close friends and family members, Marvin was never the same. Tammy's death threw Marvin into a depression, but it also opened his eyes. He realized that he too could drop dead at any moment. Anybody could. Pondering his mortality forced him to analyze his life, where he'd been and where he wanted to go. Previously, Marvin lived a relatively sober life. He had popped champagne in celebration and smoked the occasional joint. But after Tammy's death, He smoked marijuana daily and grew dependent on cocaine to feel energized and inspired. At the same time, Marvin's brother left to fight in the Vietnam War. Kent State University students were shot dead by members of the military. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered impassioned speeches in support of civil rights. Black Americans were dying for their country in war, but still got dirty looks in newly desegregated areas. It was in this spirit, the mixture of profound sadness and hope, of dignity in the face of injustice, that 32-year-old Marvin Gaye wrote his most famous album, What's Going On? The record was existential, but also political. It solidified him as a serious artist. According to Barry Gordy, What's Going On was the greatest piece of work Motown ever put out but Marvin had trouble accepting praise for his music. He maintained that the album was divinely inspired and the fame he received was undeserved, another symptom of his inescapable sense of inadequacy. In response to the album's success, the mayor of Washington DC declared May 1st, 1972, Marvin Gay Day. Marvin came home to perform for a massive crowd of fans, including Alberta and Marvin Sr. According to Marvin, at least on that one day, he felt like he made his father proud. But back in Detroit, things were not so peaceful. Marvin used cocaine heavily, and Anna discovered he'd been secretly visiting sex workers. She wanted a divorce, and she wanted to take Marvin III with her. Up next, Marvin's personal life spirals out of control.
1: This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including Headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in the no shoppers get the best savings. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now, back to the story.
0: In 1973, 34-year-old Marvin Gaye was a commercial success. With the money he made from his acclaimed album, What's Going On?, he moved to Beverly Hills, California, a proper home for the Prince of Motown. But his marriage was in shambles. Although Marvin convinced his wife not to leave him, he and 51-year-old Anna's fights about divorce often blew up into physical altercations. For all intents and purposes, their relationship was over, but they stayed married for the good of their son. Marvin also purchased his parents a home in Central Los Angeles. Even though they now live just a 20-minute drive away from each other, Marvin didn't visit often. His father only agreed to move because Alberta needed to be close to her son. But he thought moving to California was vain, a sure sign that the devil had a stranglehold upon Marvin Jr. He had a point. Once in Beverly Hills, Marvin was constantly high. He began his day with a blunt and a line of cocaine, then headed to his private recording studio, where he took more hits and bumps as he deemed necessary. On one of these many days spent intoxicated in front of a microphone, Marvin was struck dumb by the sight of a girl he described as a gift from God. Her name was Janice Hunter. She was the daughter of one of Marvin's producers and she was just 16 years old. Marvin was recording Let's Get It On when she walked into the studio. If Anna was Marvin's Madonna, Janice was his temptress. The young girl was equally as smitten with the musician, and although Marvin was still married, they started dating. They fought just as passionately as they made love, both activities fueled by a constant supply of alcohol and cocaine. Let's Get It On was a hit. Shortly after its release, Barry Gordy wrote Marvin a check for $1 million, the single largest sum he'd been paid to date. Finally, Marvin felt like he was earning what he deserved. He cashed the check and sped to his parents' house to show them, once and for all, their son was a success. But his father wasn't impressed. In his opinion, making a fortune singing lewd tunes wasn't anything to be proud of. If anything, it was proof that his son had completely lost his way. Marvin Jr. left the house in shame, feeling more inadequate than ever. Although Marvin never admitted it to his father, he was lost. Anna hardly let him see his son. And in March, 1974, he got 17-year-old Janice pregnant, He'd already spent the money he made from Let's Get It On on drugs and a property in Arizona. He needed more cash if he was going to support another child, so he went on tour. While he was playing shows, Janice gave birth to a baby girl she named Nona Aisha Gay. With his pockets full of cash from his tour, Marvin bought Janice and Nona a home in the San Fernando Valley about 20 miles northwest of downtown Los Angeles. Soon enough, Janice was pregnant again, this time with a baby boy they named Frankie Christian. In 1975, shortly after hearing the news about Janice's second pregnancy, Anna officially filed for divorce. The proceedings were nasty. For the next two years, Marvin was torn between Anna and Janice. He began speaking openly about suicide, or in his words, yearning to leave this human form. The divorce was finalized in 1977. 38-year-old Marvin immediately married 20-year-old Janice, but their relationship was already on the rocks. Having two babies in the house led to more conflict. Janice wanted to be a singer, not a housewife. But Marvin had no patience for her career aspirations. Speaking to his close friend and fellow songwriter, David Ritz, Marvin said, "'I'm the last of the great chauvinists." I like to see women serve me, and that's that." This sentiment echoed beliefs Marvin inherited from his father. He hated the way Marvin Sr. expected his wife to work to support the family and to wait on him when she was home. Yet Marvin internalized the belief that an endless willingness to serve was the mark of a good woman. But Janice didn't want to spend her life serving Marvin. In any case, being his wife was problematic on more than just an emotional level. By the end of 1977, Marvin's tax bills had grown considerably, and musicians who featured on his songs were suing for pay they had never received. He had approximately $1.27 million in assets, but $1.8 million in liabilities, meaning he was spending over $500,000 more than he was making. In total, his debts were estimated at $7 million. In 1978, 39-year-old Marvin Gaye filed for bankruptcy. Marvin sat alone at his house in the San Fernando Valley. Janice had gone away and taken Nona and Frankie with her. Where they went, he didn't know. His head was pounding too hard for him to think straight. Nothing made sense anymore. It seemed like everywhere he went, people knew his name, and yet his pockets and his house were empty. He didn't understand how such a thing could be possible. He had good things in life, wonderful things in fact. Anna had been a blessing, but he'd ruined things with her by chasing Janice. He had three beautiful children, but he practically never saw them. Anna and Janice said he didn't deserve to see them. He wanted to see himself as the musical genius people said he was, but when he looked in the mirror, the only person who looked back was a kid who wasted all his money on drugs and sex. Somewhere between DC, Detroit, and Los Angeles, Marvin lost sight of his true self. He'd become disconnected from his nature. He started his career singing gospel music, but he couldn't remember the last time he'd picked up a Bible. He pressed his palms together, and for maybe the first time since he left Motown, said a prayer. Marvin had to go somewhere alone, a secluded place where he could reconnect with his true self. Without thinking too much about the consequences, he boarded a plane to Hawaii, where he lived from the winter of 1979 until the summer of 1980 his time on the island wasn't the spiritual reckoning he imagined. Instead, it was a drug-addled days, a time he later described as one long nervous breakdown. He tried to overdose on cocaine, and when that didn't work, he made a hobby out of eating wild mushrooms. Usually, they either upset his stomach or sent him on a mild trip, but he hoped one would eventually poison him. According to Marvin, death was much on his mind, it seemed the only way out. In later interviews, Marvin said he began using drugs because they freed his creative mind, but he later self-medicated with them. Dr. Edward M. Kansian, a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, is the originator of the self-medication theory of drug abuse. In a paper focused on cocaine dependence, Kantsian writes that cocaine has its appeal because of its ability to relieve distress associated with depression and hypomania. Marvin was certainly psychologically dependent on cocaine, but it's likely he was physically addicted to it as well. Although cocaine withdrawal doesn't lead to physical symptoms as severe as withdrawal from other stimulants, prolonged cocaine use has severe neurological ramifications. Using cocaine causes increased levels of dopamine, a pleasurable neurotransmitter in the brain. Over time, a person's brain adapts to higher levels of dopamine, which means what was extremely pleasurable before becomes normal and ever more dopamine is required to feel the same high. This decreased sensitivity to dopamine is likely why, even with his fame, fortune, and family on the line, Marvin relied on cocaine to make him happy. Drugs may have helped Marvin escape his psychological stressors, but he couldn't escape the IRS. In the summer of 1980, he fled to England, looking for more and more intense highs. He started to freebase cocaine, a method of ingestion that involves boiling the drug and inhaling its vapors. Freebasing made it more difficult to monitor the amount of cocaine he took, which increased Marvin's risk of overdose. People at Motown wondered where Marvin had gone. Jeff Wald, a talent agent who knew Marvin in the 1960s, tracked him down in a posh English apartment. The singer was so stoned he couldn't get out of bed. The room was a disaster. Sex workers and drug dealers came in and out as they pleased. As a last resort, Jeff connected Marvin to Freddie Cousart, a Belgian DJ, club owner, and concert promoter. Freddie was the only person Jeff knew who could help Marvin get back on his feet. Freddie set his sights on restoring Marvin Gaye's image. He set Marvin up with an apartment in Belgium, gave him $30,000, ended his relationship with Motown Studios, and got him signed onto a new label, CBS Records marvin still took drugs but considerably less often during this period of recovery marvin wrote sexual healing just as he had as a teenager 43 year old marvin dreamed of a transcendent romantic connection a relationship with the healing madonna shortly after releasing the song marvin got a call that his mother had been taken to the hospital for an emergency kidney operation He rushed back to the States, with his mother's health in jeopardy. The tax money he owed was the last thing on his mind. Alberta Gay recovered quickly, and sexual healing catapulted Marvin back into the limelight. In February 1983, the 43-year-old won the Grammy Award for Best Male R&B Vocal Performance. Marvin thought winning would make him feel validated, but he was so anxious before the awards that he snorted line after line of cocaine. Later, he admitted his acceptance speech had been strange and disjointed because he was too high. But winning a Grammy didn't erase tax debts. Still needing to pay the IRS, Marvin embarked on another tour in May 1983. According to one of his bandmates, there was so much cocaine that Marvin was eating it marvin ended the tour early he was broke depressed and dependent on marijuana and cocaine to function something had snapped inside him he didn't know where to turn except towards his mother so he moved into the house he'd bought his parents a decade earlier his father wasn't happy to have him home over the nearly 30 years since he left the church marvin senior hadn't changed a bit The 69-year-old man spent his days nursing a bottle of vodka and his nights sleeping in a guest bedroom away from his wife. He might have been more patient with his son if Marvin Jr. didn't garner so much unwanted attention. Girls came knocking on windows at all hours wanting to meet him, and Marvin often let them inside. Drug dealers made frequent stops to drop off an array of illicit substances. Marvin didn't even try to hide his behavior, He smoked joints on the front porch and snorted lines off the kitchen table. According to a member of the Pentecostal church who'd seen Marvin's transformation from adolescent gospel singer to middle-aged wreck, the devil got Marvin. All his spirit and energy was gone. The only energy Marvin had was drug-induced, and it was just enough to keep him alive, but bedridden with nothing to do but sift through long repressed memories Behind his closed eyelids were images of his father coming after him with a belt, his torso perpetually covered in bruises. Marvin couldn't decide who he wanted dead more his father or himself. On the morning of April 1, 1984, Marvin Jr. awoke to his mother's soft voice. It was Sunday morning, and she wanted to read him the Bible. Marvin smiled. He liked the sound of her voice, even if the words she spoke didn't make sense to him anymore. She read through verses from Proverbs and Marvin was just starting to drift off when his father's sharp voice came bellowing down the hall. Marvin Sr. yelled for Alberta to come downstairs and help him look for something. Neither she nor her son could make out exactly what, but it didn't matter. Marvin Jr. flushed with rage just hearing his father's tone. His mother had trouble with her legs that made it excruciating to get up and down the stairs. Marvin Sr. was already drunk at 10 a.m., hadn't worked in three decades, and had the nerve to demand his ailing wife's help. Marvin Jr. screamed back, telling his father that if he had something to say, he ought to come upstairs and say it in person. 69-year-old Marvin Sr. stomped upstairs in a fury and burst into his son's room, scolding Alberta for being so useless. Marvin Jr. jumped out of bed, but when he tried to intervene and defend his mother, Marvin Sr. shoved him into the hallway. All the pent-up hurt, anger, and resentment from Marvin's childhood rushed to the surface. When he was young, his father threatened to kill him if he ever swung back, and that was enough to stop Marvin from trying to defend himself. But now, he didn't care which one of them ended up dead. He wanted revenge. And he was going to get it. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of Marvin Gaye's story will see the fallout of the final confrontation between Marvin and his father. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. We'll see you next time, when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Crime to Passion was written by Karis Allen with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs.